Amen. In his book, A Severe Mercy, Sheldon Van Alken refers to the cross as the place from which all distances are measured. The cross is the place from which all distances are measured. We could picture this and think of this then as hanging on the cross. In the first place, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man hanging on the cross. But we can also realize that hanging on the cross is the multilingual sign that says Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. But in this way, in, in the way that Van Alken is talking about here, we could also picture the cross as having on it any number, a, a, an extraordinary number of signs that are tacked to it. And, and they measure the distance to every place where people call on the Lord. And they measure the distance to your house. 5,775 miles, give or take a few, at least according to Google. To your place, listed right there at the cross, it is the place from which all distances are measured. Jesus was crucified at a place called the place of a skull. And if you look at the front of your bulletins there, uh, you'll see just one of the places, but from uh, John chapter 19, the second of the references on the front of your bulletin. So they took Jesus and he went out, that is out of the city, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. Golgotha in Aramaic refers to the skull. Cranium in Greek refers to the cranium, the skull. And in Latin, the word is Calvaria, from which we get Calvary. So we're more used perhaps to saying Calvary is the place where he was crucified than when we say Golgotha. But regardless, in any of those languages, in any of those ways that we say it, it is the place of a skull. Now, I know that some of you have been to Israel. I know that others of you have watched videos about Israel and looked at the geography and the topography of Israel. But here's the reality. We don't know which hill this is probably good that we don't know exactly which hill this is. There are many claims for which hill it is, Golgotha. But we don't know them, and we don't know exactly why it is called the place of a skull. It perhaps could have been the topography. One can easily imagine a hill uh, or a small mound or mountain having the shape of a skull and thus getting that name. Uh, perhaps even the features of the land. Maybe there were some caves there that made it look in particular like a skull. Or perhaps it was a place where a lot of executions took place and it just became known as the place of the skull because of the executions that were done there. But the bottom line is we don't know. We don't know why it's called that and we don't know exactly which hill it is. But into a very small place, a very small hole on that hill, the cross was lifted up with our Lord in it and slid right down into that hole. And there he hung over the earth, lifted up. Not even a place for him standing on earth anymore. Lifted up 
to suffer anguish and shame and pain for all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. From that small place, how, how big is that? Maybe, maybe about this big, the hole into which the beams are slipped, maybe about this big that is there. From that small place, all distances are measured to you. All distances are measured from there, from the small place to every place to your place. And so the question becomes for us, where do you stand with respect to that place and that man? How near to the cross are you? How far from the cross are you? Now, what I would like us to do now for a few moments is to travel some familiar ground. And it's familiar because we've looked at it in sermons in the past. It's familiar because this is the good old story. But as we trace the place of our Lord that takes us up to that place right there, Okay, let's, let's get our way to that place by following his life, asking, first of all, this question. Where was the eternal Son of God, the eternal Logos, the Word of God, prior to his incarnation? Where was he? What, what was his dwelling place before that? hard for us to imagine, maybe. It's hard for us to articulate exactly what kind of place that may have been. But what at least we can say, based upon the Word of God, is we can say that the eternal Son of God was always with the Father and with the Spirit dwelling in glory. Whatever else we want to say about that place, however we would want to define place, he was dwelling with the Father and the Spirit in glory. And it was timeless, and it was limitless, and it was full of love, and it was full of delight, and it was full of fellowship, and it was a place that lacked nothing. It was full. It lacked nothing at all. He left that place to come to earth. And the hymns tell us about it poetically, and frankly, telling us about it poetically is probably the safest way for us to describe it and try and grasp what that place must have been like. And can it be? He left his father's, his father's throne above. Picture of whatever it was like, that place is characterized by a throne. Come thou long expected Jesus says it this way. Come to earth to taste our sadness, he whose glories knew no end, leaving riches without number. Okay, so glories and riches, whatever they were like, glories and riches, or uh, the hymn with which we started the service, thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became us poor, thrones for a manger, Sapphire-paved courts for stable floor, so splendor and throne and sapphire. O sacred head, what glory, what bliss till now was thine. The place where he dwelt was a place of glory and a place of bliss. To quote another hymn, he was the Lord of bliss 
eternal and limitless who took on place. That is to say, he became incarnate. He took on place, a physical body, so that he might come to our place for our sake. He came down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all. That's once in Royal David's city. Maybe that's the simplest way to say it. He came from heaven to earth. A simple description for us. He took on place, the one who created place. He came to the place he created, and this we spoke of early in this series. He came to the place that he himself had created and found when he arrived that there was no room for him in the end. There was no place for him, no sapphire-paved nursery, no throne-like place in which he was to be born, in which he was to dwell, no sanitary place, no alcohol wipes, no spray, just a stable in all of its smell and in all of its dirtiness. And when the angels tell the shepherds where to go, you can imagine that if you were being told, go to see the one who has come, you might think, okay, it's going to be a pretty great place that we're going to, to see the one who has been born, the king of the Jews. But they say, listen, go to Bethlehem. It's a little place. It's a little town. Go to Bethlehem, and you will find him lying in a manger. Shortly after his birth, his life being threatened by Herod, he and his family flee the promised place. They flee the holy place. They flee the place of rest and end up in Egypt until the time of Herod's death. And so he returns and he begins his public ministry. And shortly after or at the beginning of his public ministry, he is in Nazareth his home city, his home place, the place where he has grown up. And, and he takes the scroll of Isaiah in Nazareth, and he's in the synagogue, and he reads from it, and it talks about liberty being proclaimed to the captives, a day of release. This is the year of the Lord's favor. This is fulfilled in your presence. It seems like great news that everybody in that place should receive with joy. And here's the result of it. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with, not joy, wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. How's that for a start? He goes to the city where he's been living, and they throw him out with the intention to kill him. Get out of this place. When he frees two demon-possessed men in Gadara, Blake preached on this a couple of weeks ago, the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Get out of this place. We, we don't want you here. 
or in Luke chapter 9, verse 52 and following, we read this as Jesus is preparing his journey towards Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. We might have hope here because we know about Samaritans who received him well back in John chapter 4. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. To be sure, there were those who in his lifetime received Jesus, who gave him place, who said, you can stay here with us. There were those who wanted him to stay, who followed him. But Jesus reminds those who would follow him that to follow him is a costly business because the life of the Son of Man as he has come to this place is a life that is characterized by rejection, by being despised, by being one like a stone that the builders cast aside and say, we don't need that one. And that's what we see in each one of the things that I've read for us thus far. That's the way that you, his life is characterized. And Isaiah 53 describes that force. It continues on describing his life as being taken away, as, as being cut off out of the land of the living. On the front of your bulletin, you'll see printed there Luke 9, 58. I'm going to pick up with verse 57. That's right after the Samaritan section that I just read for us. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Sounds like Ruth. Your place, my place, wherever you go, I'm following you. I'm with you. Your place, my place, your people, my people. I'm following you. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Nowhere to lay his head in order to find and to redeem lost humanity. Jesus takes upon himself that which belongs rightly to us, the identity of those driven out, the identity of those who are out of place, who are displaced from the dwelling place of God. Jesus becomes placeless, not for anything that he has done, but he becomes placeless for us. He becomes a displaced person on our behalf. And this culminates then in the journey to Jerusalem. That should be the place that welcomes him. That should be the place that receives him. Parabolically speaking, it should be the place where he is coming into his own vineyard. He's the son of the one who planted the vineyard. He's the one who's cared for it, the fences that are there. 
He's coming into his own vineyard when he comes into Jerusalem, the walled city, the place of habitation, the dwelling place of God. But instead of continual cries, crown him, crown him, the cries within the city that should be the place of his habitation become crucify him, crucify him. Get him out. Not only get him out of the city, get him out of this world. Crucify him. Get him out of here. And as Jesus predicted in the parable, if you were paying attention in the parable, he predicted that they would take him and throw him out of the vineyard and kill him. That's exactly what they do. They say, this is no place for him, and if we get rid of him, we can do what? Take his place. Take his place. He's the heir. If we get him out of the way, the inheritance becomes ours. The place becomes ours if he is out of the way. Now, the writer of Hebrews doesn't want us to miss the significance of this. He doesn't want us to say, oh, okay, it's just a matter of happenstance that he was taken outside of the city. That's not what the writer of Hebrews says about it. He says, we have to see this. And, and the writer of Hebrews then says, animals for sin offerings whose blood is brought in have their bodies burned outside the camp. Jesus suffered outside the gate. The place of a skull was outside, outside the camp, outside the gate. In the Old Testament, a person accused and guilty of blasphemy was taken outside the camp, and there they were stoned. Uh, a person who was a Sabbath breaker was taken outside the camp, and there they were stoned. An unclean person was sent out of the camp. A red heifer offering for purification was to be slaughtered and burned outside the camp. On the Day of Atonement, the scapegoat had the sins representationally laid upon him, and the scapegoat was chased out of the camp, into the wilderness. Get it out. The other offerings were made, and their blood was made, and the sin was upon the bodies themselves. And we read this, that they are then taken out of the camp where their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. Leviticus 16, get it out of the camp. It is defiled. It is polluted. Jesus, accused from the beginning of Sabbath-breaking, of blasphemy, of eating with, of hanging out with unclean people, and identified early on as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus is taken outside the camp, inside the camp, or if you want to say it's inside the city, inside the temple, inside the holy place was representationally the dwelling place of God. 
So if you're inside, you're with God. Outside the camp was representationally the place of destruction. Destruction of sin, destruction of uncleanness, destruction of sinners. Take them outside the camp. The place outside was out of the presence of God. And that's where Jesus was taken. Jesus was the ultimate insider. Now, I, sometimes that, that's a, sometimes a pejorative term in our culture, but there's no better way to set it in juxtaposition with what is being said here. Jesus was the ultimate insider. He has experienced eternal union with the Father and with the Spirit. In fact, we could say that Jesus was the only one who actually had right and belonged in Jerusalem, inside the temple, inside the Holy of Holies. That's his place. That's the place where he belongs. He's the insider. But the insider became the outsider to become what we are. Those who have been driven out of the presence of God. He becomes that to get us back in. To redeem us, to buy us back, to pay the debt that you owe. He becomes the redeemer who says, I've got to secure again. Your life, your property, and your name. And in order to do that, I'm taking your debt upon me. I'm becoming what you are. His blood, when he was killed outside of the gate, they didn't collect up his blood and take it inside to the temple inside of Jerusalem and put it over the holy things inside of the temple. They didn't do that. Instead, his blood purifies the eternal dwelling place of God. His blood isn't used to purify the copy of the copy of the copy that is at that moment in Jerusalem. Instead, it purifies the eternal dwelling place of God, which all of the copies were pointing towards. And it does that so that in every place, those who call upon him and upon his name, might be able to enter in. By his name, you call out and you enter in to the eternal dwelling place of God, and there is no other way to get in. But be aware, when you do that, you have to count the cost. The way in is the way of the cross. It's the place of a skull. And sometimes that means placelessness for the people of God. This call to count the cost is the context of Luke chapter 9. Jesus isn't just saying that the Son of Man doesn't have a place to rest his head. He's saying that those who follow him may not have a place to rest their heads as well. And then in Hebrews, the writer exhorts us to join Jesus outside. 
verse 13 of the section that we read. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Going outside with Jesus isn't going on a picnic. Going outside with Jesus is being one with Jesus who bears the reproach, who bears the suffering that he bore for those who, to whom Hebrews was being written, and also in Matthew 21, for those who were Jewish people, and especially Jewish leaders at the time, that meant they had to leave behind the old system. They looked at the old system and didn't realize that it was supposed to be a fading system pointing to this one. But Jesus says, you've got to leave that behind. You've got to leave behind all of those old sacrifices. You've got to leave behind all of those old dietary customs, all of those means by which you think you get into the holy place. Because there's a new and one sacrifice that has taken place. And the food you need is grace, not some physical food. You need, you need the food of grace to sustain the relationship. For Gentiles and Jews, it means this. You've got to leave behind the old ways of life, the old circles, the old habits, the old ways of thinking. To follow Jesus means to go out, to exit, to exit from, to exit from what seems like it would be the thing. Jerusalem, right? The, the earthly city, Jerusalem. Exit, go out of that in order to form and join the ecclesia. Ecclesia, the church. Out called. Out called. Called out people. People were called to go out, who leave, who leave the world feeling like, what did I just do? What decision did I just make to follow Jesus? And they arrive and they look around and they realize they've gone out to follow the one. And now around them is a great assembly. A great assembly gathered in anticipation at the heavenly Mount Zion. And what do we do when we've gone out to join Jesus and to bear the reproach? We look for other outsiders. We look for other people. Call them in. Call them into that place. You, you, you fellow outside people. Come in through Jesus, where the law of the land is sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus over all of it, but that sacrifice of Jesus begets and requires sacrifice. Sacrifice in response to sacrifice. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. He's saying, listen, the old way has gone aside. The sacrifice has been made outside the camp. Now join in making sacrifices, and here are the sacrifices. The sacrifice of praise. The sacrifice of time. The sacrifice of coming together with the people of God to worship with lips that praise his name. And just following as we close this section from Hebrews, the sacrifice of doing that which is good. Do not neglect to do good, the sacrifice of sharing what you have. Praise 
and doing good and sharing. That's the quality. That's the sacrificial quality of the kingdom of God that Jesus is bringing. For kids to share, for kids to do good, for adults to do good is to sacrifice. The place of a skull, the place of the cross, the place from which all distances are measured. It is ground zero. That place where that man hung on the cross, that hole into which that cross was slipped, that place is hell on earth. That place and no other is hell on earth. And it is the best place on earth. And so, where do you stand? Where do you stand with respect to that place? Lord, we pray.